This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Sheila Bock about her book titled Claiming Space, Performing the Personal Through Decorated Mortarboards, published by Utah State University Press. Um, the book is a really interesting window into students in higher education in the US today into popular culture, into social media culture, into questions of identity, um, and honestly, so many other things that you might not expect through the lens of decorated mortarboards or graduation caps. Um, but I think that's what makes this book so cool, because it takes us into all of these things through an unexpected, perhaps, lens. So Sheila, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you. And could you start us off, please, introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Absolutely. Uh, so I am currently an associate professor um, in the Department of Interdisciplinary Gender and Ethnic Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or UNLV for short. Um, and in terms of how I came about uh, writing this book, so full disclosure, I really did not set out to research this expressive tradition. It was something I kind of stumbled upon um, when as a new faculty member at UNLV in 2011, I, I started attending the commencement ceremony at my institution, the graduation ceremony, which took place twice a year. Um, and, you know, I'm very much a fan of the pomp and circumstances of these ceremonies, but for people who have been there, um, that they are quite long, right? And so, you know, you find your, your attention kind of moving around a bit. Um, and so uh, over the course of the years as I attended these ceremonies, um, just at a very personal level, um, from an observer's perspective, the decorated guy caps became a highlight for me. Right. So, um, you know, the the commencement ceremony tends to be this very kind of structured and formal ritual. Um, so, you know, I would appreciate the ways that these caps would offer, um, you know, very like poignant, very uh, oftentimes hilarious little breaks right from the formality of the occasion. So um, I, I'm trained as a folklorist, uh, which means that I'm really drawn to the ways that people's beliefs and perspectives take kind of tangible form in the world around us, right? The, the things um, people make, the things people say, the things people do. Um, so after attending 
several of these ceremonies, um, kind of my folklorist radar began to go off and I began to pay some closer attention uh, to the ways in which these cats were really calling attention to themselves. Right. So um, over time, um, as I became, as I began to kind of pay more attention to them, kind of using the lens of a, a folklorist, um, I came to recognize that a lot of the designs and messages on these caps um, were very powerful performances, right, of the personal in this very kind of heightened ritual space. Right. So this prompted me um, just to begin documenting the tradition with a bit more intent. Right. And so in the early stages of the project, um, which I believe was in 2016, uh, I began working collaboratively with folks at the Center for Folklore Studies at Ohio State University, which is where I went to graduate school. Um, and I started working with them um, to document the tradition yeah, through photographs, through um, surveys, through interviews, and to create a kind of digital archive um, of it. And in the process of working on that, I began to see more and more recurring patterns in the designs and messages. Um, and as I documented more and more examples, I began to talk to more and more graduates about why they chose to decorate the caps the way they did. Um, you know, I found some really interesting points of connection between um, these very intensely um, personal expressions that we'd find on the caps and the ways in which they're also very much larger than personal, right? Um, you know, ultimately creating opportunities for graduates to position themselves uh, in relation to these broader kind of more big question discourses surrounding a higher education. Right. So discourse is connected to ideas like belonging, citizenship, right? The promises of the American dream. And because this was a topic I found that had not received much scholarly attention, there had been a little bit, but not very much, um, I decided to really take them seriously and write this book. Brilliant. Thank you very much for taking us almost on that journey from I'm bored. Hang on, I'm noticing a thing. Hang on, I'm now thinking about that thing. Um, I think a lot of books come from that kind of trajectory, and it's always fascinating to start with that. So thank you for sharing your experience with that. Um, I'd like to ask kind of, I guess, an obvious question, uh, but thinking back to when I was an undergraduate and at my university, we did have the option to decorate our mortar boards. And I just remember going, oh, that sounds like a whole lot of work. I can't be bothered. <laughs> so I want to ask the obvious question how do students decide whether or not to even decorate them before we get into what they put on them what's the decision like about whether to do anything at all yeah i mean that's a really good question and you know i'm i talked to um like hundreds of graduates over the course of the, this research and, and people kind of came to this tradition um in different ways right so there were you know um you know a group you know, a substance group who would plan ahead, right? And so they they knew that they, they wanted, that there was something specific that they wanted to say um, and that they, you know, were on top of things and they would get the stuff and then they, they, they would put it on there. But a lot of the times it was people who kind of very last minute, right? So they, they, they finished um, final exams, you know, they're looking ahead to it and then they kind of decide, you know what, I, I, I think I want to do something um, that that's kind of, 
you know, gonna to make me stand out a little bit. So kind of one way to answer that question is um, that there is kind of a, a practical consideration that I think it's kind of um, not as relevant now as it once was. But, you know, there was this idea of, you know, I want to stand on the crowd. I want my family. I want my friends who are in attendance to be able to see me. Right. And so they would, um, you know, put on something so, so that they could say, oh, that it's the person with the thing on their cap. As more and more people have decorated, I think people now see it more as a chance of um, making the, the larger ritual, right, um, feel something that's more of their own, right? And so I think um, one person I talked to said it's a matter of putting your own personal touch on it. Right. It's a way of kind of lay, laying claim to the significance of the um, of the celebration, right, of the ritual of commencement um, in their own voice and on their own terms. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'm glad to hear that it's not all planned out loads in advance. Some no, people are more I, last yeah. minute. No, there were people very much, you know, on top of it. And then there were people... But the majority of people I talked to, it was something that, you know, they decided to do last minute, right? I mean, there's this one that, that I love. It was sent to me, a picture of it was sent to me by a, a colleague of mine um, at Western Kentucky University. And it was this like piece of paper that was, you know, very crudely ripped out of, you know, like a three ring or, or like a spiral notebook. Right. And then on it, just, you know, very sloppy handwriting. It said like last minute, like everything else I did in college. Right. And then that was like very crudely taped onto it, not even like kept within the lines. Right. So there's just like a lot of kind of tongue in cheek there. But, um, you know, there's also quite a range between kind of that kind of very deliberately performed haphazardness to things that were very much more meticulously and carefully planned. And that's what was so fun about it, right? Just to kind of see the wide spectrum of ways that people would choose to claim the space. And then also getting the chance to talk to people about how and why they made the choices that they did. Well, so if you've given us that fabulous example of the kind of ripped off piece of paper at one end of the spectrum in terms of preparedness, can you maybe tell us about a vignette right at the other end in the more sort of meticulous pre-planned goal? Yes. Yes. And so, you know, one example that comes to mind is that there is a student um, named Krista who, um, and a really big part of her identity was being part of the punk subculture, right? And then she had a very, you know, punk aesthetic in her everyday dress. Um, and, you know, in the weeks leading up to the commencement ceremony, she decided that she, you know, wanted that punk aesthetic kind of integrated into the design of her cap, right? And so she actually, she got together with some, some group of friends um, and um, she put together this cap where she covered the, the top with black construction paper. Um, and then she very meticulously um glued on dozens of these silver spikes like the kind that you would see like on a motorcycle jacket or something like that um on top of her cap right and so you know it took her you know a, a lot of time to do it i think it was also very um heavy right and uncomfortable to wear to have kind of these metal spikes on there 
But for her, it was really important, um, as she explained to me um, during our conversation, um, that can these two identities, right? This one of, you know, like punk, this one of being a successful student, um, were not seen as being in opposition to one another. Mm. That's a that's a great example. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Yes. In the two examples you've just told us about, um, although they're at very opposite ends in terms of preparedness, um, they're both very much, as you said, about expressing personal identity through things kind of meaningful to that particular student. Mm-hmm. You also talk about in the book examples where students use pop culture references as part mm-hmm. of this method. So can you tell us about kind of some of the things you found when you talked to students about how and why they integrated these sorts of references into what they did? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in in many ways, you know, pop culture references are a very efficient way, right, of communicating messages uh, or communicating ideas in a very limited kind of space, right? Because you you have this square. um, And, you know, um, when you... um, incorporate references to popular culture uh, in many ways you're invoking these storylines or these story worlds that people are, are already familiar with right so you don't have to lay it out so much right and so you know there's a kind of efficiency to that as well but you know in my conversations you know I found that people were also doing other things with it, not just kind of invoking familiar storylines, right? So there was this one student uh, who I talked to um, at one of the UNLV's graduations where um, she was majoring in chemistry, right? And so, you know, on her cap, you know, she had um, a Bible verse on it, and I'm forgetting the exact Bible verse, but, you know, it was, it was um, kind of... It, indicating kind of her um, religious affiliation. Um, She also had the text, you know, BA in chemistry, um, and then some imagery of, um, you know, laboratory equipment that a chemist would use, right? Just to kind of, you know, communicate, you know, what degree that, that she was walking away with. And then highlighting and embellishing the design of this cap were these really, you know, pretty blue jewels. Right. And a lot of the caps would be bejeweled. But I remember when talking to her, you know, as she was walking me through her choices, you know, she talked about those jewels were a reference to the show Breaking Bad, um, which was, you know, a popular at, at the time when she was graduating. But it was referencing the um, kind of blue crystal mess that the, the main character, who was a, a chemistry teacher, was um, creating. Right. And so there it kind of functioned as a kind of inside joke right? That not everybody was going to recognize, right? So there was that kind of sense of, you know, constructed intimacy through that reference to particular pop culture, right? Um, you know, another thing that I found that um, references to pop culture did um, was to, um, or, you know, I make the case that it, it's working to kind of disrupt the formality and the inherent reverence right, um, of the the ritual as a whole, right? Because when you think about um, the commencement as this ritualized space, 
right? Or as its ritual. We can understand it to be both as a rite of passage, right? So marking people's transition from kind of one status to another. Uh, but we could also understand it as a, a kind of rite of intensification, right? In that it's kind of performing this, this collective values about the value of higher education, right? And what one um, gains from having reached this milestone and this accomplishment of getting the college degree. And so in this very kind of formalized scripted space, um, I was really struck by the ways in which references to uh, like children's cartoons, for example, right, were integrated in into that space, right, to, you know, potentially push back against this idea, right, that like you're an adult now, go off and, you know, conquer the world, pursue this pathway towards, you know, um, eventual success that, that you were certainly on, right? And so, you know, I found that in some of the designs, um, references to pop culture were um, kind of complicating that, right? Um, often in really humorous ways, right? In ways that were meant to be funny, right? And that weren't meant to be um, too disruptive, but still by invoking that kind of ambivalent laughter, it was still um, doing that work of disrupting the formality and the, the larger significance of the ritual as crafted by the institution of the university. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Mm. No, that, that's a great example um, and really interesting finding to see sort of children's cartoons used in some pretty big topic conversations. Uh, you know, the value of higher education, right? The place of an individual within a hierarchical ceremony. But you talk about even, I would argue, some kind of even bigger questions than that. Um, for example, the concept of the American dream. So <laughs> can we talk about decorated mortarboards in that context, please? Yes, absolutely. Right. So, you know, this the American dream, right, is a very central one in, in broader discourses um, around education in general and higher education in particular. Right, but it's this very, you know, powerful ideology in the history of the United States um, that emphasizes these very core values, right? Like, you know, equality of opportunity, you know, hard work being rewarded, the importance of perseverance, right? This kind of enduring optimism for the future, right? Things are only going to get better. Um, but of course, <laughs> these ideals are not often realized in and practice. And so, you know, very well-founded critiques of this ideology um, call attention to the ways in which it relies on this conflation between citizenship and also whiteness, right? Or rather middle-class whiteness. So, you know, in other words, achieving the American dream is something that is much more accessible for some groups than others. So, 
because education is very much understood to be such a powerful stepping stone, right, in achieving the American dream in, in terms of these values of equality of opportunity, um, you know, graduation dress has historically served um, independently of decorative board awards, but has historically served as this very powerful symbol in, for example, um, you know, fights for the DREAM Act, right? Which, um, you know, the DREAM Act is this legislative proposal um, that's meant for providing undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as children with a pathway to citizenship, right? So in a lot of the, um, you know, immigrant rights movements um, and, and, and fighting for the DREAM Act, there's been, you know, mock graduations, right? Where, where people kind of show up to protests wearing cap and gowns in order to kind of highlight even how people who do everything quote-unquote right still don't have access to those promises of the American dream, right? So um, in researching for this book, uh, I found that uh, for many graduates, um, decorated grad caps serve similarly as a kind of protest. And in one of the chapters in the book, uh, focuses of um, on Got photos of caps posted on social media with the hashtag Latinx grad caps, right? Um, and the ways in which people um, would use the cap, right? Um, and the decorated cap to invoke both this sense of legibility, right? In terms of like, see, I've done what I'm supposed to do, while also foregrounding aspects of um, particularly Latinx identity you know, in reference to kind of folk culture, you know, pop culture, Spanish language, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of um, focus on family and the importance of family, but, you know, they would uh, foreground these aspects of specifically Latinx identity um, to what I saw as um, problematize this conflation between assimilation and belonging. Right. And so I get, engage a lot with, um, there's another folklorist named Rachel Gonzalez Martin um, and her work. Um, and she looks at the ways in which, um, you know, hyper visibility of cultural difference in U.S. American context can be repackaged as this form of kind of oppositional aesthetics. And so I kind of connect to those ideas to see um, the ways in which people are kind of problematizing the foundational ideas of the American dream as one that's based on assimilation kind of through this hyper visibility that they're performing on their grad caps. Um, so that's one way um, that I see these caps as engaging with notions of the American dream, but even beyond groups that have historically been marginalized, right, or um, excluded uh, from the promises of the dream. Um, I've also found patterns and caps that, you know, promise, problematize this key assumption that education is this key stepping stone to upward mobility and eventual success, right? And so there's a lot of caps um, that really um, try to complicate that, you know, through, as I talked about, ambivalent laughter surrounding issues of the fact that a lot of people have to take on really burdensome debt right, in order to even be able to get access to to the dream. Or, you know, once you're done, right, the, the promises of eventual success, um, you know, people have been communicating through their caps, the ways in which those pathways are seeing, seeming um, less accessible 
right, um, to um, a lot of people in the population. So those are just some ways I see it engaging with kind of this big idea, right, of the American dream. Mm. No, definitely very important to discuss. And it makes a lot of sense to me that there are multiple ways that this is happening and that we can see it. To kind of pick up on something you mentioned a bit earlier, to what extent are these messages that are very much aiming to problematize these narratives around kind of what is success? What is the American dream? To what extent is this about personal self-expression? To what extent is this personal self-expression sort of directed back to the university sort of in you you mentioned the word protest right we've talked about the hierarchy and the scriptedness so can we put those together and talk about this a bit more explicitly within this you know very structured ceremony yes and i think you know to answer your questions at the beginning i mean i think it's all of that and this is one of the things that i think that makes it such a a rich form of expressive culture to delve into, right? Um, because it is, you know, the people that I talk to, a lot of them really primarily see this, um, yeah, their, their caps, as something that is intentionally personal, right? It, it says something about me um, as a person and it's something I kind of want to bring my, myself into this space. Um, but you know, um, yeah, the, the personal is always larger than personal, right? In some capacity, because it's shaped in conversation um, with, you know, these larger um, um, questions about, you know, who belongs in this space. And so, you know, one example that um, I really um, kind of speaks to the multi-layered um aspects of these caps as forms of communication comes from this graduate that I talked to who graduated in 2017 named Brenda, who um, was from Mexico. You know, she had come with her family when she was very young. Um, I think even before she remembered, maybe like three, three years old, two years old. Uh, but on her cap, you know, she had this text um, that was in Spanish, but it translates to fly as high as you can without forgetting where you come from. And so in my conversations with her, you know, she wanted to frame it, right, not just as this individual accomplishment, right, but she really wanted to kind of situate this as a broader community accomplishment, right, which was a recurring pattern I would see in a lot of the caps, right? But then she also made a point very intentionally to have it be in Spanish, right? Because as she explained to me that, um, you know, the, the people in her family and the people in her community were her primary audience, right? That were Those are the people that she was envisioning um, would, would be the audience for her cap even though she knew it would be kind of in a broader public space as well, right? But she wanted it to be very much directed towards the people who are kind of in our more intimate networks. So even though that was her more primary audience, though, you know, her cap was very much crafted in response to very broader political context at the time. So she had graduated um, with her associate's degree from a local community college in 2015. And at that point, um, she had decorated her grad cap um, so that it read undocu-grad and proud, right? So she was very much, you know, proclaiming her 
status and her identity as an undocumented um, student or an undocumented graduate. Um, fast forward to 2017, right, which was a very different um, political, broader political context, right, with the um, the election of of Donald Trump as president, right, um, and you know, she talked to me about her thought process in terms of how she wanted to kind of situate herself and how she decided to kind of perform herself on, on, on her cap. And so she talked about how she considered using language like undocumented, unafraid, unapologetic, but she eventually opted not to, right, because of that shift in political rhetoric um, in that, you know, she very intentionally did not want to elicit the type of xenophobic responses, right, that had the potential to ruin the celebration of the day. Um, and that was something that had not been a consideration two years before, right, in 2015. Um, but at the same time, you know, she still included images of, um, you know, butterflies, right, which is a symbol of the immigrant rights movement in the U.S., right? And then another kind of fun touch on her cap, or fun might be the wrong word, but a beautiful touch on her cap, um, was that included a real marigold, which is this flower associated with the Day of the Dead celebration. Um, and she included that on her cap in order to honor her grandfather who had passed away that year, right? So we can kind of see in this cap, you know, it's, you know, so many different um, points of connections and relationships it's invoking just in this very small space, right, of the cap. Right. And, and another example, um, I mean, I could go on and on. I'll just give it another example here. Um, but um, there was this, uh, I, I talked to this um, graduate or this person named Ray who had graduated from UCLA in 1999. Um, and he also decorated his cap with um, real flowers. Um, and it was very much kind of inspired by Carmen Miranda and, and his cap was, um, his cap decoration was part of a, a, a bigger um, kind of ensemble or performance um, on stage where, you know, he was a, a gay man. Um, and, you know, as he was crossing the stage, he described himself as sashaying across the stage, right? Also holding a rainbow flag with the, the kind of Carmen Miranda, um, Frida Kahlo inspired um cap with, with the real flowers and for him you know it was really important for him to be bringing his whole self into that space um because you know he talked about how as a student um at that institution um that you know he very much you know he was always out he was an out gay man which w w was not necessarily the, the norm at that time um but he faced a lot of hostility right um for um doing that and so it was really important for him to kind of bring his full self into that space so one thing that i think both of those stories and the ones you've told us about um before that answer have kind of raised that i'd love to talk about is this idea of the kind of different levels of audience, right? Is the audience oneself that one is bringing? Is it an intimate community? Is it speaking to a wider political conversation? Um, and I wonder if maybe we can think about kind of the audience from the other side, not necessarily what's being put towards them, but in some ways how they receive it or respond to it or even see it. Can you walk us through how some of these individual instances and decisions around what goes on the mortarboard 
can become amplified? Yes. No, that, that's a wonderful question. Um, so, you know, I talked um, a little bit about how um, there's a chapter in the book that's focused on the, um, the hashtag um, that, of the Latinx grad caps. Um, which was started uh, by Latina rebels. Um, and there, you know, it was, um, you know, people just started um, putting, yeah. so, you know, one of the things that really struck me um, when I started um, looking at this this hashtag and how people were, were posting with it is that, you know, we, we take the, the primary audience of the, the graduation or the, the primary setting or the primary performance context of the graduation ceremony, right? Which is kind of very um, specific and to a certain extent kind of contained. And then when people would put their um, picture um, of their cap on social media and they would label it with this hashtag, um, it then found a new audience that was then part of um a community, right, that was um, foregrounding or highlighting um, a particular, um, you know, c- communal, intersectional, you know, Latinx identity, right? Um, and that there it opened up opportunities then for, um, you know, political um, conversation, right, and, and, and political framing that um, might be implied um, with uh, in the particular context of the commencement ceremony, but it, there's room for it to be made much more explicit through the the captions, right, or the, the text that accompanies these these photographs when they're posted online. So a lot of these um, taps would be accompanied by really powerful personal narratives of, you know, of families overcoming adversity, right, um, to, um, you know, to help the graduate get to this point where the graduates having experienced very real forms of racism um, and, and, and having to deal with that, you know, as they made their way through their educational journey. And so, you know, by, um, you know, posting and um, aligning individual caps with this hashtag, it became part of the, this larger kind of political voicing um, that um, spoke to a lot of the the broader political ser- concerns at that time, right? But that also, um, you know, have extended well into the present. So given all of this kind of, all the goals that go into this, the personal self-expression, the intimate connection, the some amount of kind of pushback or protest at either the university or the university and something wider, the participating in these bigger conversations. Is there a kind of, is there a conception of what makes a decorated mortarboard a performance in this sense? Yes, that was successful. Is that even relevant? And and if there is that kind of concept, like what makes something like that successful? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, right? So, but if, if we're thinking about, you know, performances or as I'm thinking about performances and success, you know, I'm looking back on um, kind of this, kind of the, the classic definition of performance in, in my field, which is folklore studies, um, which is, you know, Richard Bauman's assumption of a responsibility to, to an audience for a display of communicative competence. 
And I think that um, in my conversations with folks, I think that the audience that mattered the most to people was themselves in that, you know, they wanted to have a cap, like a successful cap from their perspective was one that um, communicated something about themselves, right? And so for some people, this was something that was really like meticulously and thoughtfully constructed, right? Like for example, with Chris's cap and she kind of wanted the the cap in this heightened ritual space to reflect and give value to this punk aesthetic that um, was very present in her everyday life. But I think even, you know, being funny and, and eliciting a laugh from somebody would have been seen as successful and as communicating something about themselves as like, I am a, a funny person, right? So I think that that was the audience um, who had the most power, right, to um, assess whether a cap was a successful display of communicative competence, right? But then there were other, um, you know, audience things as well, right, or uh, audience considerations as well. Like one person that I talked to who is also an undocumented um, graduate who is also very um, active, in the immigrant rights movement. Um, but, you know, she was, you know, she wanted to foreground her, um, you know, her undocumented status. Um, and she was also wanted to uh, foreground that in a very unapologetic way. And so, you know, she um, toyed with the idea of using, you know, um, hashtag um, FICE. Right, um, as a way of you know, or actually with hashtag fuck ice, right, as a way to really, um, you know, make a statement in there. Uh, but she ended up going with um, the the text "Love has no borders," right? And she said there was a lot of factors that went into that decision, but one of them was she knew her mom would like that better, right? And so that's just like one example of in which, you know, like there's all these different kind of audience negotiations that, that happens um, when when people are thinking about how they want to frame themselves and the, their message and what's important to them kind of in this space, right? Using the, uh, essentially, right, this blank canvas of the decorated I just find that absolutely fascinating to think about. And of course, the idea of it being a laugh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense as a particular metric of success but the complexity of this i think is what makes it so fascinating i can imagine having thought through all these things now when you sit in these ceremonies there's even more things that you're thinking about as you the different boards is it has that experience just completely changed for you yes i mean you know i've, I've always appreciated them but you know one of the things that you know i find really kind of powerful about the expressive potential of these caps is that they are, um, is in their seeming triviality, right? Of, um, I, I think that part of the reason why people are able to do things that can seem really ridiculous or seem really irreverent or seem really, um, you know, potentially kind of disruptive in these caps is that, you know, they're, these these forms that in the grand scheme of things right don't really matter right but you know as you know um 
folklorists and others will recognize there's power in the triviality, right? And the triviality of um, different forms of expressive culture can often provide cover to allow people to give voice to, um, you know, often um, disruptive messages. And so I think that um, the ways in which these graduates are simultaneously embracing this heightened moment where they are the center of attention, right? And where they are kind of claiming the, um, the gravitas that comes with the, um, the accomplishment of gaining one, one college degree and all that that implies, right? At, at a broader cultural level and also engaging in the triviality of this form that, you know, we can understand it is really feeling very, secondary to the serious stuff of the of the commencement ceremony i think is is what um makes it so rich and so vibrant and so fun and so i i just i love now you know i think about it in those terms right so in the conclusion of the book i draw connections between um you know the decorated mortarboards and the um you know illuminated manuscript of um, you know ecclesiastical texts in the, the 12th to 14th century, right? Where the, the copyists who were you know copying these manuscripts would often um, put you know really playful and at times like irreverent, right? With like theological sexual images in the um, in the margins, right? Of these very serious texts, right? And then for for hundreds of years, you know people and scholars didn't really pay attention to those marginal drawings. They saw it as very secondary, but, you know, eventually they became to see, um, they, they came to see the ways in which um, the, what was drawn and written in the margins wasn't secondary, but it was actually helped shape the meanings of the text and how people would read them. And I see decorated mortarboards um, functioning in the same way, right? Where, they're not wholly disrupting kind of what um, the point, right, or the purpose or the the central message of um, the the ritual ceremony as a whole, right? But they still are present, right? And they're still um, very meaningfully shaping the significance and the meaning of that ceremony for the individuals who are in attendance. I'm so glad you added that in from the end of the book. Um, I think it gives people even more ways to think about these decorated mortar boards and perhaps have different experiences next time any listeners might be attending that kind of graduation ceremony. So thank you for giving us all those things to think about. Um, but I do have one more question, if you will allow it. Um, thank you. The book is out. People can go read it and get even more stories from it. Um, is there anything you might be working on now that it's done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview? Yes. Um, well, um, it, it's ideas that are not quite fully formed, but, um, and, you know, at the end of the book, um, in the conclusion, I spend a little bit of time, um, talking about this discursive power of the personal, right? 
Um, and thinking through um, how labeling something as, you know, quote unquote personal can do different types of rhetorical work. So, you know, I can trivialize a claim, right, or be used to trivialize a claim by marking it as anecdotal, right? Like that's just your experience. Or it can, you know, somehow authorize a claim, right? This idea of like, I saw it myself, this happened to me. So I've been thinking a lot lately um, about when the lines between the personal and the generic, right, or the personal and the larger than personal are drawn, that is when the distinction is deemed, right, important. And when the, the lines between the personal and the generic are blurred, right? So I'm thinking about how these plays out in kind of different realms. Um, but right now, um, I'm thinking about these issues specifically in relation to the storytelling we find in the genre of true crime and true crime podcasting um, and the, the types of kind of narrative negotiations we find around concepts of blame and personal responsibility. Because um, ultimately, I'm really interested in thinking through um, kind of how narratives becomes a way of negotiating blame as this contested categories, right, in these different types of our daily lives. Wow. Well, that sounds quite interesting. So best of luck with that project. Um, and while you're working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Claiming Space, Performing the Personal Through Decorated Mortarboards, published by Utah State University Press. Sheila, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thank you for the conversation. 